There are actually seats on the front row, and actually the second, third, and fourth rows over here if you are needing a seat. You guys make me look really worried back there standing, so. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Good word, great image and picture this morning to start out our time of worship of uh, this constant river of worship that we are joining in, in and part of. And uh, what a great privilege. This morning we are in John chapter 5. And uh, we're going to be wrapping up the last section of chapter 5. Uh, you know, if I could... We could endure a four-hour sermon. Uh, we could have done this all in one shot. And really, it's, it's, it's written by John to be kind of one story, beginning with uh, Jesus healing the man at the pool of Beth, Bethesda, Bethesda. Uh, if you've been here for the past few weeks, you've been part of the story as it kind of unfolds and unwinds. If you remember, to give you some background, uh, Jesus healed this man uh, who really didn't take much notice of the fact that Jesus healed them and didn't really pay much attention to who Jesus was. Uh, but the Jewish leaders did notice and paid very close attention and were quite offended because Jesus did it on the Sabbath. And they accused Jesus uh, of working on the Sabbath because it was apparently against the law to heal or to cure. Uh, it was against the law for a doctor, for example, to, to do their curative work on the Sabbath. So they accused Jesus of breaking the law of Moses. Uh, so Jesus defends himself with this defense. He says, well, I had to because my father works on Sunday, well, Saturday, actually, on the Sabbath, and I have to work also because I am God. Okay? And as I shared a couple weeks ago, it's like saying, you know, if you were accused of throwing eggs at people, you know, driving by in your car, and you, for your defense, you said, well, I have to throw Easter eggs because I'm the Easter bunny kind of goes from bad to worse. You know, that's basically what Jesus does here. He gives a defense that puts him even really in more hot water because he's claiming equality with God. And in uh, the middle part of chapter 5, he explains uh, what this looks like, what uh, it means for him to be uh, the Son of God, uh, to be doing the Father's work, and how that is something he was compelled and had to do. And then he closes off with the, the final part of his argument, explaining and really defending his position. Um, and it really raises some very interesting questions. And maybe you've never asked this question. Um, maybe you have. But uh, the question is raised is this. You know, at what time or how did Jesus know who he was? Uh, we believe that Jesus was born a babe in a manger, that he came from heaven to earth, and that he became human. Now, we know that one-day-olds don't have a sense of their own existence. In fact, you know, we've been able through a lot of research and study to discover that kids really don't have a sense of their own identity until they're quite old, two, three years old, uh, that they really connect a lot of their identity with their parents. In fact, we know that a child doesn't fully uh, separate themselves out from their parents until they're about five years old. Uh, this raises interesting questions about Jesus. You know, as Jesus was a small infant and child and boy growing up, at what point did it dawn on him, you're not just this average guy, you're God, okay? It's an interesting question. And when he first had that thought, what did he do with it? Imagine you're eight years old in third grade and you're sitting at school one day at your desk and you go, you know, I think I'm God. <laughs> wow, this is cool. Uh, what would you do with that? You know, raise your hand to the teacher. Teacher, I just had an epiphany. I'm God. And the teacher sends you to the principal's office. And you get kicked out of school. Because you just don't do that. And, uh, you know, how did, how did this process unfold for Jesus? Uh, the Bible doesn't really say. The Bible does not go into any detail. Uh, it says, you know, he's born. A few years later, he's 12. He's blowing away the, the teachers at the temple with his great knowledge of the word. And then he shows up. He's 33, 30, 30 years old and he's turning the water into the wine at Canaan. Uh, but in this passage, in the last part of chapter 5, we get a glimpse of what Jesus, uh, how Jesus came to understand himself. 
Uh, and it's interesting, in, in verse 31, he says this. He says, uh, next to me back, let me give a little background, start with verse 30, but he says, but I do nothing without consulting the Father. I judge as I am told, and my judgment is absolutely just, because it is according to the will of God who sent me, not merely my own. So Jesus has this clear sense and conviction that he is from God, he was sent by God, he is God incarnate, okay? That he is the Father's only Son. Uh, And then he goes on to say this, he says, if I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony would not be valid. Uh, Jesus is wise enough and smart enough to know that his own estimation of himself is not a valid testimony. He's wise enough and smart enough and he's uh, understanding enough to know that he could not come to this conclusion in and of himself. Uh, and, and, uh, And we would agree with that. You know, generally speaking, if people tell you they are God the first thing we would think is that they are delusional. And having worked with people who have been very delusional, I know that they can be very convinced that what they believe is true. Some people believe they're God, they believe they're, you know, Abraham Lincoln, they believe they're Einstein, and they're convinced of it. And uh, their conviction doesn't make it true. Uh, So Jesus knew that his own idea about himself didn't bear weight. Uh, and as Jesus, however this knowledge unfolded for him, it wasn't just something he came up with on his own. It had to be verified from outside sources. And you could argue, well, surely he had, you know, God gave him some kind of memory or some kind of sense of his existence before the world began. But even again, that, that is, is very subject to error. Uh, again, I, I've worked, I've seen people who are delusional, who have vivid ideas and images and memories that they would swear are true, uh, but they're not. So Jesus had to have some confirmation outside of himself. Okay, he couldn't just assume that because he had these feelings or images or ideas that they were instantly uh, therefore true. And Jesus says, I don't even accept my own testimony about myself. I can't validate my existence as God based on my own word. I, I, even I, have to formulate my identity outside of my own heart and mind and and, and thought. Um, So so how do we know, and this raises another question for us, how do we know that Jesus' claims are true? Uh, This past week I got to teach at Chiangmai University at a philosophy of religion class, very interesting class, great time uh, talking with a bunch of Thai students about how you know truth, how you know God, how you know it's, it's his, the Bible is his revealed word. And how do we know? How do we confirm? How do we verify Jesus uh, in all the claims of those who claim to have truth and to be saviors of the world or guides to the truth? Why not Muhammad? Why not Buddha? Why not uh, you know, the teachings of, of uh, Joseph Smith and Mormonism? Why Christianity? How do we validate that it's true? How do we confirm it? Well, Jesus attempts and uh, really gives his best defense of how we can know he is who he claims. How we can be convinced and absolutely certain that he is God's son, that he was sent from the Father uh, to save the world, to be the, the redeemer, the savior of mankind. And that's what this passage, what, what he looks at. Um, now, I have an assignment. For those of you who are in middle school, high school, I need your help here. Okay, so this is very important. You may want to take notes here because I have a job for you. Uh, your, your parents, from time to time, your parents may have doubts about their faith. And they may question whether or not God exists. And uh, they may not share this with you. You've got to kind of dig it out of them. But sometimes they may be you know, kind of down and depressed and looking discouraged. And it may be because they're wrestling with doubts about you know, is Christianity real? Is the Bible real? Is God the truth? And so I'm going to give you students some, some good ammo to encourage your parents when they're wrestling with their faith. Okay, so if they come to you going, I just don't know if it's true, okay, you'll be able to give them an answer. Okay, so this is important. You could save your parents' salvation here. There's a lot at stake. So pay close attention. Uh, how can we know? How can we know that Jesus is true? 
Well, let me read his defense, and then we'll go back and look through it kind of piece by piece. This is how he defends his claim. He says, If I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony would not be valid. But someone else is testifying about me, and I can assure you that everything he says about me is absolutely true. Uh, you sent messengers to listen to John the Baptist, and he preached the truth. But the best testimony about me is not from a man. Though I have reminded you about John's testimony so that you might be saved. John shone brightly for a while, and you benefited and rejoiced. But I have a greater witness than John, the works that I have done. These have been assigned to me by the Father, and they testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself has also testified about me. You have never heard his voice or seen him face to face, and you do not have his message abiding in your hearts. Uh, because you do not believe me, the one he sent to you. You search the scriptures because you believe they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. You refuse to come to me so that I can give you this eternal life. Your approval or disapproval means nothing to me, because I know you don't have God's love within you. For I have come to you representing my Father, and you refuse to welcome me, even though you readily accept readily accept others who represent only themselves. No wonder you can't believe. For you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from God alone. Yet it is not I who will accuse you of this before the Father. Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses on whom you set your hopes. But if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me because he wrote about me. And since you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? Well, let's look at uh, these uh, witnesses that, that Jesus lays out. And in this passage, Jesus calls to, his, his, to, to give testimony on his behalf several witnesses. Um, he names basically four witnesses. So let's look at the witnesses, the incredible testimony about Jesus. Uh, they are incredible, but they are also credible. I didn't know this, but did you know the word incredible Incredible or antonyms, which means they're opposites. I didn't know that. So you can take that how you want. Uh, the first witness, he says, is the Father. He says, there's one who bears witness about me, another one, and he's speaking of his Father. Uh, Jesus, as we said, did not trust or give validity to his own testimony. That's interesting. C.S. Lewis, in uh, the book Mere Christianity, wrestles with the same question, and uh, you're probably familiar, uh, he, he gives the argument, Jesus uh, has to be one of three things. He's either Lord, uh, a lunatic, or of the devil. Those were his three conclusions. He said Jesus can't be a good moral teacher, he can't be a good person, he can't be a great man, unless he's absolutely Lord and Savior. Otherwise, he must be some kind of crazy person, or of the devil. Uh, I would put that last category, basically he would have to be a liar. He would have to be somebody intentionally out to deceive others, which would make him not necessarily a good moral teacher. By the way, if he's crazy, it would make him not really a good moral teacher either. Uh, so for Lewis, the only option was that Jesus was Lord. And uh, Jesus argues really for the same thing. Uh, and he says, first of all, that, that, that the Father has bore witness. He says, there is one who testifies about me, one who gives testimony about me, whose word is absolutely true. Uh, would anybody ever doubt the declaration and word of God? Nobody. In fact, that's one thing universally true of all religions, is they would all say that if God says it, it's true. Of course, we all argue about what it is God actually said, uh, from denominations, from religions, from, from person to person, but nobody would doubt the fact that if God says this is the truth, that we would accept that as truth. And Jesus says that God the Father has, has given testimony about me. Uh, how did this happen? We don't, like I said, I don't know how it happened. There's no, no reference in Scripture that explains how this process unfolded. But I could imagine it happening something like this, that as Jesus was a boy... 
obviously filled with the Holy Spirit in an extraordinary way. Uh, a human being without the, the flaws and defects of a sin nature. Uh, from very early on, he must have had an incredible relationship with the Father. And we see that when he's 12 years old, very gifted in the Word, blowing people away with his wisdom. And I can just imagine Jesus as a young boy communing with the Father in fellowship with the God of the universe, talking, praying, fellowshipping, reading his word. And that God revealed to Jesus who he was. And that Jesus understood the difference between his own thoughts and his own voice and his own mind and those confirming words from God the Father. And somehow as he grew, as he matured, as he began to have this ideas, these ideas about himself, that God confirmed it in him through that relationship. Through his communion and intimacy with the Father, through his fellowship with the Father, it was confirmed to him. And the, the great thing is that once God himself has confirmed something to you, you don't really need other evidence. When you have become thoroughly convinced that God has spoken truth, uh, all other evidence becomes secondary. And I really believe that's very likely how it came to Jesus, that he had this idea, but it was confirmed to him uh, convincingly by the witness of his father through fellowship and communion with him. Um, and so he came to know this, this testimony through, through these times with God. And it is different from his own ideas about himself. Uh, and you know, if, if, you don't, if you've never learned yet how to distinguish God's voice from your own voice, I would encourage you to explore that. Uh, God does speak to us. He speaks to us through various sources and places. And we sang a great hymn this morning, a great word from Kevin about all creation praising God, proclaiming Him. Psalms 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. God the Father is speaking the truth about the universe and the world and Himself to people everywhere at all times. He is bearing witness to the truth. Uh, for those who have the faintest glimmer of light and who seek that truth, they will find it confirmed to them from the Father. We'll talk in a minute why most people don't see it. But the truth is that God is speaking truth. God is, is seeking to reveal himself and ultimately to be, reveal Christ to all who will open their eyes and see it. It is everywhere around us. It is in the Word. It is in many forms revealed through many sources, through culture, through redemptive analogies in many cultures and places and even in other religions. There are things, there are sign points signposts that point to the truth for those who are seeking it. Uh, and God can and will confirm that truth. I remember when I was about 15 years old and I first uh, came to Christ, I first really understood the gospel. And I remember turning on, I don't know, I remember I was 15 years old, all my friends were like, you know, during lunch break, smoking pot and, you know, goofing off. And I would go into my car, I had a a junky old car I drive to school and at lunch break at high school I'd go in my car and I'd turn on the radio and listen to Christian radio and I would listen to preaching. I know I was a twisted child. There was something wrong with me. Uh, but I would listen to preaching over my lunch break at high school. And uh, I thought, I just knew it was true. There was something that God confirmed in my heart. This is true. And it rung like a bell to me. This is the truth. And God does that, and he confirms truth in our life if we will listen. Um, so, uh, you could make the claim, well, Jesus was either a liar, or lunatic, or Lord. Um, we know that uh, it's possible that a person can think they hear, hear God's voice. Somebody who's delusional, who's kind of on the lunatic side, can believe they hear from God, and God confirms to them, yeah, you're God. Uh, so that one we haven't ruled out yet. He could still be a lunatic based on this witness. However, based on the witness of the Father, he could not be a liar. Because in order to hear God's confirming voice, he had to have a relationship with God. And that's not the path of somebody who's into deception. People who are out to deceive the world aren't the people who are pursuing truth from God in a relationship with him. So we know at the very least he was not a liar. Uh, he, he may have been deluded at this point, but he was not a liar. So how do we know he wasn't just crazy? How do we know he wasn't just some self-deluded person who thought he heard from God? Well, we, come, we call up the second witness. And actually, I'm going to skip a witness because we're going to come back to John. John the Baptist was a witness. We're going to come back to him in a minute. Um, but Jesus says, I have a greater witness than John. 
which is why we're skipping him at the moment. We're going to get to the good ones first. He says, the greater witness are the works that I have done. Let me read it from this translation. I have a testimony that is greater than John's, for the works which the Father gave me to complete, these works themselves which I am doing, they testify concerning me that the Father has sent me. Uh, the second great witness to Jesus' uh, claims about God were the works that he did. Uh, by that he means his miracles, his teachings. Uh, it means ultimately his, his work on the cross. Uh, it means ultimately the work of resurrection and the work of giving redemption to us. All of, God's, all of Jesus' life work bore witness to him. Um, you know, people who are, are delusional, people who are crazy, who think God speaks to them, oftentimes they think they can do supernatural things. They think they can fly. They may think they can walk on water. They may think, you know, they can teleport themselves to Mars and talk to Martians. But they can't really, okay? They think they can, but if they were to walk on water, they sink like everybody else, all right? Uh, they may have delusions about what they think they can do, but they can't actually do those things. Jesus actually did those things. Uh, he walked on water. He fed, as we'll see uh, next, next week, he fed thousands of people with just a very small little lunch. He healed the sick. He, he healed this blind man. He made a crippled man walk. Uh, ultimately, he raised the dead. Okay? Crazy people may think they can do that. They don't. Okay? When I was pastoring a church back in the States, we had this poor, wonderful saint who was not totally crazy, but slightly. And... Um, I don't know what possessed her, but every time somebody died, she would come to me every time and say, Pastor, I feel God's telling me to go up and pray for this person that they'll be raised from the dead. And I'm, and I'm thinking, why didn't, you, why didn't God talk to you and ask you to do this like four days ago when they were still living? You know, why wait till now? And, uh, you know, I always had to really, I was always just fearful that in the middle of service she was going to like rush up, tear open the coffin and start praying for some person to rise from the dead. Okay, because she kind of believed she could do this. Uh, and I had to strongly discourage her. Okay, not that I don't believe God could raise the dead, but I really had doubts about her doing it. I don't think she'd ever prayed for anybody to be cured from a headache, much less bringing life to the dead. And most of the time it was 99-year-old people who I'm not sure would have been real happy about being brought back. <laughs> and so it's better off just to let them be in heaven where they're much better off. Um, Jesus' works were, were incredible confirmation of his claims. The interesting thing, Jesus' enemies, of all the things they hated about him, the Jewish leaders who ultimately killed him, who accused him of all kinds of stuff, interestingly never denied his miracles. One of the great proofs of, of Jesus is that his enemies never discredited a single one of his miracles. When they saw this crippled man walking, they didn't deny that he had been healed. They were only angry that Jesus did it on the wrong day of the week. Even when Lazarus was raised from the dead, his enemies did not dispute or refute its credibility or fact. In fact, they said, we are in trouble. Look what this guy's doing. He's raising dead people. We've got to stop this. They never denied its truth. Jesus said, look at what I've done. Normal people don't do this. Uh, I believe Jesus, as he, as he had this confirming uh, sense of, of God confirming who he was, he responded in obedience. Uh, Jesus was the perfectly obedient son. And at some point, God the Father said, I have a work to do. Uh, I want you to heal this person. And Jesus went and did it. And as he saw the power of God flow... It was confirmation that all that God had put in his heart was true. And uh, God began to do incredible things. Healing, raising, giving sight to the blind, uh, walking on water. As, as uh, it was confirmed to him, to himself as well as to the world, that what he claimed was true. So that's the second great witness, his work. Um, and ultimately, his work of the cross. Uh, certainly his miracles were incredible. Uh, they were impressive. They were things that only God could do or only those empowered by God. 
But the greatest work of all was not those works. The greatest work of all was the work of the cross. The work of dying and suffering. Uh, the work of, of pouring out his life's blood for us. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I was, uh, I was a little sinner in many, many ways. But one of the cheap ways I was a little sinner was I was an unbelievable liar. I, I lied about everything. And I, I think back, I thought, why was I such a liar? I don't think I even knew the truth half the time. And uh, there's basically two reasons why I lied. The first one was to protect myself, to save my skin. You know, you get in trouble, you do something stupid, you don't want to pay the price for it, so what do you do? You lie. I didn't do it. Or you make up these wild stories about why you did it. You know, it was the, it was the Martians. They told me to do it. You know, they were, they were holding me at gunpoint. And I would lie to get myself out of trouble. The second reason I would lie was to impress people. I was very insecure. I didn't believe I had anything that anybody would like. So I made up stuff about myself. And I would tell people all kinds of lies about myself so they would think I was cool. Because I knew if they just knew me as I was, they would not be impressed. That's what liars are about. Liars don't die on crosses. They lie their way out. Jesus pursued the cross. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem and determinedly set his will to die on the cross. Uh, liars don't do that. Uh, Jesus had a mission to suffer and die for us. You know, I think as Jesus read through Scripture, as he came to understand that he was the fulfillment of Scripture, uh, can you imagine what Jesus felt the first time he read Isaiah 53? When he heard the description of the suffering servant who would be crushed for our iniquities. And he realized fully what it meant to be God's son. Uh, how that must have impacted him as he understood the full mission that God had given for him as God's son. Um, as he understood what it meant to be the Passover lamb, to be the lamb of sacrifice that he knew he one day would be. Uh, the second witness. First witness, his father. Second witness, his works. The third witness was the word of God. He says uh, to the, the religious leaders, he says, you search the scriptures because you believe they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me so that I can give you this eternal life. Uh, Jesus says to these religious leaders, you know, if you really read the Bible correctly, if you really understood, you search the scriptures, you read the, the scriptures he was talking to a group of people who made a living of studying the Old Testament, memorizing it, scrutinizing it, studying it inside out and backward, debating it, fighting over it, analyzing it. And Jesus said, the only thing is you kind of miss the main point of the story. The main point of the story is me. He says, all of Scripture points to me. Uh, from the beginning to the end, I am the, the center of its of its focus. Uh, and it's true that if we rightly read and understand the Bible, Jesus is, is, is the focus of it all. And as you read and study the Old Testament, uh, you know, you get bogged down in places like Leviticus and, you know, night after night you try to read and you get about through seven verses and you fall asleep, right? Because it's like really boring. And you, and you think, this doesn't apply to us. You know, about boiling goats and milk and wearing like polyester and it's just like, phew, it feels like over your head. Well, next time you read through the Old Testament, try to see how Jesus is woven, how Jesus is pictured, how Jesus is proclaimed, how his work is manifest throughout the Old Testament. It will change the way you read uh, books like Leviticus. Uh, it's a powerful witness. Uh, and and it, and, and really a remarkable witness. Uh, the Bible was written over some 1,600 years by 40 different authors. All of them point to Jesus. Uh, there's no way, no way this could have been a man-made effort. There's no way people over 1,600 years could have collaborated to write all these books pointing to one person who would come at a future point in history. Only God could do that. And Jesus, 
uh, is confirmed through all of Scripture. He is its central theme. Well, the fourth witness uh, is basically people, reliable witnesses like us. Uh, I skipped over John the Baptist, but let me go back to him. It says, You sent messengers to John the Baptist, and he preached the truth. Uh, John shone brightly for a while, and you benefited and rejoiced. Um, I have reminded you about his testimony so that you might be saved. Uh, John, John bore witness to Christ, and he was a, what we would call a reliable witness. Uh, Jesus says in the next verse, he says, I don't give much credence to that. Well, why? Well, it wasn't that John's testimony wasn't valid, but it just didn't mean anything to Jesus because it had already been confirmed to, confirmed to him. Uh, John's testimony was a second-hand witness. John could only testify what God had revealed to him, what the Word had revealed to him, what Jesus himself had revealed to him. You see, he had gotten those, those witnesses already, he'd already heard the testimony of those witnesses, of the Father and of the Word, and uh, perhaps some of Jesus' work. And those were confirming witnesses for him, and he was able to pass on as a second-hand witness to others what he knew and claimed. Uh, that does have value. It didn't have value for Jesus, because he already knew who he was. But it does have value. In fact, Jesus says, I point you to John because it can bring salvation. It can bring salvation. In other words, for those people who don't know the Father, who don't have a relationship with Him, who maybe don't know the Scriptures, or certainly don't read them with the, the vision or, or uh, lenses that we read them with, the witness of reliable, credible people is extremely important. And he said, you know, John shone brightly. He illuminated the truth for a while, and they got real excited about it. They were very enthusiastic about the truth that John was opening up to them about the Messiah and the coming of the Promised One. Uh, you and I are in that category. Like John, we have the opportunity to be reliable witnesses to the truth. And the cool thing is, John, Jesus says that it is a path for some to salvation. Uh, huge responsibility for us that we can bring the message of salvation to those who are unable to hear the first line of witnesses because they're not there yet. Ultimately, they have to come to those first line of witnesses to be fully convinced. But a path to that is us as reliable witnesses. Well, those are the four witnesses that Jesus gives. Uh, let's review them because they're very important. Okay, high school, middle school students, don't forget this because your parents will be confused someday, I'm telling you. Uh, the, the, the witness of the Father, the witness of Jesus' works, that's right, the witness of the Word, the witness of reliable witnesses like us, people who know Him. Um, as Jesus unfolded this to the, to the religious leaders, He was not terribly kind. And He tells them that all these witnesses are pointing to Jesus, but he says, you're not getting it. He says, and in fact, the Father's testified about me, but you haven't seen his, heard his voice, you haven't seen his face. His word does not abide in your heart. Why? Because you don't believe. You don't believe the one that he sent to you. In other words, you don't believe Jesus. You don't believe that I am what all of it points to. You have rejected me from the very beginning. He goes on, he says, you search the scriptures, you look through the scriptures, you pour through the scriptures, but you reject where it points. He says, you refuse to believe it's me. Um, in your search for truth, I really believe there's only one path to get there, and it is through these four witnesses, uh, through the word, through uh, believing the miracles and works, believing the work of the cross, uh, through studying the scriptures and seeing that it, where it points, uh, through listening to reliable witnesses. Uh, I really believe there is no other way to the truth. Uh, we are kind of stubborn as people, and we've tried many other paths. Uh, a favorite path that many people have tried is the path of logic and reason. And I'm thankful for guys like C.S. Lewis, who are way smarter than I am, who can make the gospel very logical and reasonable and uh, books like Mere Christianity and others. They can spell it out in very logical terms. 
But for a seeker, for somebody trying to come to the truth, they cannot come to the truth on those grounds alone. Logic and reason and good philosophy won't get you to the truth. Uh, unless you come along with that to the place where you look at Scripture and the confirmation of the Father and uh, the work that Jesus did. Uh, you must come to the truth ultimately through those things. Um, a lot of people pursue truth through historical analysis. And right now there's a huge movement going on uh, trying to find the historical Jesus. And kind of the assumption is that the Bible's not very historical, even though it's the most... We have more manuscripts of the Bible than any other ancient manuscript. Thousands and thousands of copies. But it's not reliable. Okay, we can take Homer, we can take the Iliad, which we have just a small handful of, of copies. We'll trust that, but we can't trust the Bible as being historical reli historically reliable. So there's a whole movement now to try to find the historical Jesus, who he really was, because obviously the Bible is flawed. Well, you're not going to find truth down that path. Okay? And those who have gone down that path have ended up terribly confused. Terribly confused. And they have not found truth. Uh, they have just found themselves lost in a wilderness of confusion. Um, some try to be convinced through proof. They want proof that God is real. You know, they want like God to do like some huge miracle now, or to zap them, or you know, to take them to heaven and like do this cool like PowerPoint of heaven or something. I don't know what they're looking for. Proof. Okay, I'll tell you now that no one will ever come to the truth through those things. Remember the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus, uh, the rich man dies, goes to heaven, and he says to Jesus, please send Lazarus back to warn my brothers that they're, they're headed for a bad place. I'm here. I can confirm and testify to the foolishness of my ways. Please warn my brothers. What does Jesus say to them? If you do not believe my word, and if you don't believe what's written in the scriptures, even if your brothers came back from the dead, even if you came back from the dead, your brothers wouldn't believe. The only way you will ever be confirmed of the truth of the gospel is through those witnesses. Okay, it's the only way. Uh, and if you, are, if, you, if you are doubting your faith, if you're confused, if you're uncertain about who Jesus is, you must pursue the truth through those four things. Okay? You need to seek God in your heart. You need to seek uh, Him in His Word. You need to examine all that Jesus' life was about and seek their truth. And God will reveal it to you if you're truly seeking the truth. The problem is this. The Jewish leaders didn't see the truth because they really weren't seeking the truth. They were simply trying to defend their own opinion. Uh, as I've debated and wrestled and uh, talked to lots and lots of people, about Jesus trying to share Christ with them. What I find is that we are stubborn about our opinions. Uh, one of the things about human nature is we are convinced that if we believe something, it absolutely must be true. And we will die believing in error rather than admit we could be wrong. And that's exactly where the religious leaders were. They refused to accept that Jesus could be the truth, that could be who he said he was, and they spent their lives defending an error, defending their foolish opinions. Uh, in order to search the truth, you have to give up your own ideas, your own opinions, your own convictions, and come with a blank slate to those witnesses and allow those witnesses to speak to you. Allow those witnesses to confirm the truth. And uh, for those who have taken that path, they will, with one voice, proclaim that Jesus is the answer. But it's something you must pursue on your own. Um, what does it say about me personally? <clears throat> well, it, it confirms and it shows us that we can know Jesus and we can know the truth. Uh, and I encourage you, if you doubt, if you question, that you pursue truth down those avenues. But there, it, it tells us something else. And I think it's very interesting that um, that Jesus did have to discover himself as being born a human, coming in human flesh like all of us. Jesus did have a time when he was a seventh grader and in an identity crisis. 
Okay, that's the job of being a seventh grader, is to figure out who you are. And Jesus had to do that. Um, some people figure it out in seventh grade. Some people don't quite figure out until they're about 73. Okay, but at some point, we have to figure out who we are. And I think it's significant and enlightening that Jesus chose to discover himself through those paths. Because those paths are not only an avenue to discover the truth about Jesus, but they really are also a path to discover the truth about ourselves. Do you know who you are? There's a book written back uh, a few years back called Birthright. And the, uh, the whole thing of the book, the guy says, do you know who you are? And my friend read this book, and I hadn't read the book yet, and he kept asking me this question. He would say, who are you? I would say, well, I'm Tim. He goes, yeah, but that's your name. Who are you? And he just drove me crazy with this question, and I couldn't really answer it. Who are you? Who are you? Do you know who you are? Who are you? Well, how would you answer that question? Well, I really believe that, that the only legitimate way to answer that question is through those same paths. It's interesting that Jesus accuses them. He says, you know, it's no wonder you guys, you guys don't get it. You are more concerned about the honor of men who come in their own name than you are about me coming in the name of the Father. And Jesus says, I don't give any account to your honor because I know that your hearts are not filled with God's love. He says, you guys don't love God. Why would I care about what you think? And yet what I see in the world is we want to get our identity, we want to be honored by people in the world who are not filled with God's love. Okay, this is just plain suicidal. Okay, get this. You know, God who's filled with love, who's kind and compassionate and generous, wants to tell you who you are and wants to help you understand your identity in Him. Uh, but we don't want that. Instead, we look to get honor and affirmation from people who are filled with selfishness, hatred, prejudice, bigotry, anything but love. Okay? Now that's crazy. Because people who are like that are not going to tell you very nice things about yourself. Right? We have beauty pageants, we have elections, we have popularity contests. Now, you know, I have Facebook and I can actually check a function that says, you know, you can have your friends rate you. <laughs> it's like, do I really want this? Do I really need to know, you know, what a loser I am? Okay? That I'm really like the last on their list. And yet we do that, don't we? Uh, girls, this is sad. Girls can go on the internet and they can have guy, random guys who are just perverts and jerks rate their, their, their appearance. You know, why would you do that to yourself? You know, what, what kind of insanity is that? And yet we do that. We let people define us. And people's definition of us will never be good. Okay? It will be a lie. It will be based on their own self-interest. And ultimately, it will not be the truth about us. But God wants to give us his identity. And we do that through these paths, through relationship with the Father, through the Word, through the work of Christ. And uh, there are two forms of our identity. There is our identity before Christ. And the Bible paints this picture of us before Christ, and it's not real pretty. Okay? It's compassionate and loving, but it's terribly true that we are wretched, sinful, miserable creatures. But that's not the end of it. He wants to give us another identity, which he talks about also in Scripture, through the work of Christ. Um, and that identity is simply uh, and profoundly as his child. Uh, it's interesting that Jesus uh, primarily identified himself. If you were to ask Jesus who he was, uh, what he most often said was, I am the Son of God. I am the Son of my Father. I'm just a kid who is sent by my Father to save the world. Uh, for Jesus, that was enough identity. That was all the identity he needed. Uh, let me read a couple of passages about uh, the identity that God wants to give us through Christ. In John, 1, chapter 12, John chapter 1, verse 12, Jesus says, or John says actually, to all who believe Jesus and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. They are reborn not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes directly from God. Galatians 4, verse 4 says this, 
But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God made you his heir. Amazing verse, amazing verse. What we are more than anything else is not, you know, a, a leader of some organization, not a, a doctor or, you know, a college student or a high school student, uh, a pastor or a missionary or a teacher. What we are above everything else is a child of God, a child of God. Uh, it's sad that in our Western culture we've kind of lost the sense of nobility. We don't have kings, we don't have nobles. We kind of have lost that. And there is some loss in that because we've lost the sense of what it means to be the son of somebody great. You know, in a, in a democratic society, everybody is the son of nobody. And it makes kind of everybody nobodies, right? Um, but there's something about being the son of somebody great. Uh, there, is, there is nothing like being the son of God, like being God's child adopted as joint heirs with Christ. Uh, if you struggle at knowing who you are, uh, there is no greater identity than to be God's child. Uh, the reason for that is that to be God's child means to be dearly loved by the Father, to be protected by Him, to be cherished by Him. Uh, John 1 says that we are dearly beloved children of God. Uh, you know, uh, if, if we have employees, if we have made bonds, if we have people who work for us, if they mess up, if they steal from us, if they do stupid things, you know, we fire them. We might be gracious as we fire them. We might even forgive them as we fire them, but we get rid of them, right? If our kids mess up, we don't get rid of them. Grace and love says we forgive them and we keep them and we love them and we hold on to them. There's nothing greater than to be the child of God. And ultimately, that is the identity that God wants us to see. He wants to see us as people who have be, become, through the work of Christ, his dearly loved children. Uh, one other thing I would like to share that we are is we are witnesses to the world. Um, we have, if we have come to Christ, we have first-hand access. We have the confirmation of the Father. We understand what the Bible says. We've seen and comprehended his works. And God calls us to be a channel of salvation as witnesses to those truths. Uh, people all around us will never come to those witnesses. Uh, they will never understand who God the Father is. His voice is speaking them all around them, but they can't hear it. They're deaf to it. Uh, they're not going to read their Bible, and if they do, they're not going to get it. Okay, if they're Thai and they have to read their Thai Bible, I guarantee they're not going to understand it. Thai Christians don't understand it because it's confusing. Um, you are their channel. You and I are, their, are the witness. We are the path of salvation for them. Okay, for most people, it's not going to come directly through those witnesses. It's going to come through our witness. And it's so vital and so important that we be a reliable witness that the character of our life is one filled with Christ-likeness, that they see Christ in us, and that our words proclaim Him as Lord and as the only path to salvation. You know, you don't have to speak a lot of Thai to say, you know, Jesus loves you. Uh, powerful words. Jesus wants to give you eternal life. Okay, it's a short sentence. There's Thai people here who can teach you how to say that. You know, it's powerful witness. It's a powerful witness. And uh, they may not believe it, they may not accept it. That doesn't matter. Our job is to bear witness to the truth. Uh, right now, we are going to uh, take communion together. I'm going to ask Kevin to come up. Um, even in taking communion, 
we, uh, we bear witness to the truth uh, by the very act of participating in this event. We bear witness to what Jesus did. And it is saving. It, it can be redemptive. Uh, and sitting up here in the front row is one person who can bear witness to that. I didn't ask her if I could share her story, but I will. Um, Tip one Sunday came to church and we took communion. And it was through that that she came to know Jesus Christ. Just by taking this, this, uh, this token, this symbol, we bear witness to the truth and it's powerful. It's a powerful testimony to each other. 1 Corinthians 11 says this. For this is what the Lord himself said, and I pass it on to you just as I received it. One night, when Jesus was betrayed, uh, he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you, Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and you, sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing again the Lord's death until he comes. You are bearing witness to the Lord's death until he comes. And so right now we're going to just uh, have a time of fellowship, of communion. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then as we sing this song, I invite you to come forward. And what we'd like to have you do this morning is take the elements back to your seats. And as we we sing this song, as we bear witness to Jesus, uh, just take the cup and the bread on your own, and then we'll go from there right into a time of worship. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that for those who want to know the truth, for those who genuinely seek to know, uh, it's everywhere around us. It is confirmed over and over again. For those who are willing to lay down their own stubborn pride and opinions and honestly look for the truth. Lord, we thank you that the Father speaks into our heart and our mind and our life through creation, through your word, uh, through your spirit. You speak the truth. And you want us to know the truth about Jesus. We thank you that your word proclaims the truth. Uh, And we can know it's true by the same confirmation of the Father, the same confirming word of the Father. Uh, Lord, we look at your works and even now we remember the work of the cross. Uh, Lord, How could anybody not see in the cross the splendor of this great truth that it must be from God? Lord, we thank you that it all points to you. It all gives you glory and it all confirms in our hearts and minds that uh, we're not arrogant. We're just illumined by the truth of the gospel. And we long that other people would know the same truth and would find its confirming power in their hearts. So we come now, we, we, we partake together, we proclaim the great work of Christ on the cross, the shedding of his blood for our sins, and his great redeeming gift by his grace. We celebrate you, Lord Jesus, right now, in, Jesus, in your precious name. <coughs>